You're listening to the Psalms for Sojourners podcast, in which we look at the Psalms as prayers for God's people on every occasion. We hope it's a blessing to you. Hi, and thanks for listening to another episode of Psalms for Sojourners. I'm Cole Kirby, a pastor at Sojourn Montrose and the host of this podcast. In this week's episode, I was joined by our very own Pastor Reed Squires, whom I have the pleasure of working directly alongside here at Sojourn Montrose. In this week's episode, we talked about Psalm 34, and Reed lent some insight into not only that psalm, but into Hebrew poetry in general, and the ways in which the psalms specifically employ literary devices to show us realities about who God is and what he's doing in the world around us. I hope you enjoy it. All right, well, I'm here with Pastor Reed Squires uh, for this episode of Psalms for Sojourners. Reed, it's good to have you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Um, Well, before we get started, I would imagine, since you are um, the pastor of vision and leadership at Sojourn Montrose, that uh, most, if not all, of our listeners are familiar with who you are. But on the chance that there are people listening who don't know who you are, just introduce yourself, uh, tell us what you do and um, who you are and maybe how long you've been at Sojourn and things like that. Yeah, of course. Um, well, my name is Reed, as Cole said, and I, I serve Sojourn Montrose as the pastor of, of vision and leadership. Um, and I have been at Sojourn Montrose since we started. I was on the core team uh, back in 2013 when we planted in October, and I was I was simply a member at the start and planted with Marshall um, as a member of his his core team, um, and quickly multiplied a parish um, out and led that for a couple. Well, I guess I still technically lead that parish um, today with my wife Micah, um, and came on staff a year after that and was just kind of helping out with operations as a director of operations, a deacon of operations. Um, and then was ordained about a year after that. And then in 2019, when Marshall moved roles to um, lead kind of the church planning effort for Sojourn Houston, that's when I walked into the uh, the chair of leadership and vision when Cole, you came on staff and have been serving in that role for, for two wild years, it feels like, um, where every year has been very different. The first year we navigated a space move into a school. And then this year, well, you guys know everything that's happened in 2020. Um, even if you're listening in 2025, my guess is you will remember what happened in 2020. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of my work history. I am I'm originally from North Carolina. I moved to Texas to go to grad school at Texas A&M um, in 2011, and uh, I met my wife Micah here in Houston, and we got married in 2015, and now we have two children, Magnolia, who is almost two years old in September. Um, and then JW or Jude, who is uh, a little over six weeks old, um, actually seven weeks now today. Yeah. So that's and it, that's our and story. And at one point, Reed had a really, really great roommate. That's and true. That's a part of the story he forgot to mention. Um, yeah, that but Reed Cole, was my first roommate in Houston. So that's right. Cole um, lived in my dining room um, <laughs> in, in Houston when he moved here. Yeah, so that was fun. We got to know each other very quickly. (laughs) Yes. Um, 
Well, with all of that, uh, just I, I like to ask everybody who comes on uh, this question, and I think it's helpful to hear um, different people's uh, experience and perspective. But read what role do the Psalms play in your life as a Christian? Um, I have always been an anxious person um, ever since I was a little kid. I struggled with anxiety. I can remember being anxious about restaurants and theme parks and being in the car and things like that, um, certainly being on an airplane. Um, and that has kind of continued into my adult life. And so the Psalms for me really in, uh, in, in my sojourn, in my time at sojourn became more of a lifeline, um, for me to, to work on my struggle with anxiety with, um, I know you had Dodds Panger on here a couple weeks ago. He's also my counselor, and he kind of taught me um, maybe five years ago or so to start turning to the Psalms more regularly to deal with my anxiety. Um, so I've done that, and it's been really, really helpful to to pray through a Psalm a day. I've, I've essentially prayed through a Psalm a day for four or five years, um, whether it takes a couple minutes um, or even seconds, or I've spent a good 30-minute chunk on one, um, like Psalm 119, for example, um, where you could spend a couple days if you need to. Um, yeah, so they've really helped me process my anxiety. Um, I've struggled with other uh, mental health issues or emotions uh, recently as well that the Psalms have been more of a lifeline in. Um, but I've typically taken them at the surface, if that makes sense. Like I've typically um, read through a Psalm and just kind of said, all right, that, that sounds like my prayer today. Um, and just kind of offered it up to the Lord. So it's not until recently that I've, I've really tried to dig in more and discover um, what's what's really going on in a deeper way. Um, and so we'll talk about that a little more. But part of that is that I took a class on on Hebrew poetry that, that explored the Psalms. Part of that is that we did a, a sermon series last year through the Psalms and emotions. And so um, just finding out deeper and more substantial ways to utilize the Psalms in your life as an individual who struggles with uh, a full range of emotions like we all do, um, has kind of been my journey, but that's a more recent one. Yeah. I think that, I think that's helpful. Um, it's interesting hearing different people talk about their experience with the Psalms because for some, the Psalms are something that they really have to work to engage with, uh, because they're, maybe less in tune with or struggle less with mental health things or their emotions are more foreign to them. And then there's people like yourself who have found the Psalms to, to give you a voice for all the things you're feeling and didn't know how to express in really helpful ways. Um, you said something before we started recording, uh, and then you kind of alluded to it just now when you were talking about how, how you've read the Psalms kind of, as prayers and, and very much just taking them at their word, right? Like, it, okay, this Psalm is expressing right. para paranoia. And so I'm going to pray about my paranoia or whatever it is. And then you talked about this shift where you've started like diving deeper and trying to discover more in the Psalms. And you said something before we started recording about how, you know, the Psalms, are, are at the very minimum exactly what they say, but like the rest of the Bible, right. there's so much more. And, and I think we'll, we'll touch on that a lot as we look at Psalm 34. And so I think that's a good transition to just ask if we're going to focus on Psalm 34, um, in our time together, would you just start by reading that for us? 
I would, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and I'm going to read the title. The title is Taste and See That the Lord is Good. Um, and then it has this little subsection that says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Um, he, the first he being Abimelech, the second he being David. So Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, and those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteousness, the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, first of all, thanks for reading that. And, and there is an element, um, kind of a literary device that's used in this psalm uh, that helps us understand what David uh, might be trying to communicate or allude to. Um, do you want to just kind of talk about that uh, for a minute? Yeah, of course. And I think the first thing before I get to that specific element is is to remember that um, a lot of times when we read the Psalms, we read them rightfully as these songs and prayers to the Lord. Um, but ever since they were put down on paper, they've also been literature. They've also been really specifically poetry. Um, and so it's one thing to think, okay, yeah, I can sing this, I can pray this. And it's another to also think simultaneously, oh, this is also a poem. Um, and in America, if, if you're like me and not a, a poetry major or haven't spent significant time studying poetry, um, you think a poem is just something that kind of rhymes. Um, and maybe there's more than that. Oh, there definitely is more than that. But, um, but, but at least it's something that kind of rhymes or has this meter or beat to it, right? Um, but then when you start studying Hebrew poetry, you realize that, that those two things, rhyme and meter, are, are not in Hebrew poetry. It's not part of their poetic kind of narrative as a people. Um, but what they do have are, are a couple elements that we have, which is imagery, a uh, picture made of words, right? Psalm 1 has this, the tree planted by streams bearing fruit. It gives us this mental picture um, that we can relate to. 
metaphor like Psalm 18 to the Lord is my rock. Is the Lord literally, literally a rock? No, he's not a rock. We don't worship a rock, but the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Um, so that's a poetic use of, of a phrase. There's simile, right? I am like a desert owl of the wilderness. Psalm 102.6 says that, describing the isolation of a bird in the desert. Um, personification, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The heavens are, de- are worshiping. It's this uh, giving something that doesn't have life, this, this personified quality. Um, uh, certainly alliteration, like starting uh, phrases with the same uh, or starting every verse with kind of the same phrase. And then, uh, so we're used to most of all those, right, as, as Americans who, or at least people in the West who have some experience with poems. But I think the one that Hebrew poetry uses a lot that Psalm 34 uses that we're not super used to in the West is, um, is this. It's acrostics. Acrostic, an acrostic poem is simply a poem that you take the alphabet and each verse starts with a different, the next letter of the alphabet, so, for example, um, verse one for our, if you had an acrostic poem in America, the first verse or the first line would start with A, the second would start with B, and then C, and then D, and so on and so forth until you have 26 verses or 26 lines. Um, well, Hebrew alphabet is 22 letters, and so acrostic poems in, in the Old Testament specifically have 22 verses. Um, so anytime we see 22 verses in any kind of... Um, in any kind of Old Testament passage that's kind of might be a a song or a psalm or a prayer, it might be and probably is an acrostic. And so we should look at that because my guess is that you're not reading the Bible in Hebrew. I'm not. Um, There might be a couple people in our church that are, but uh, good for them. Um, but if you're reading it in English, you, you lose the acrostic. You're, it doesn't translate into English, um, which obviously that's, that's the case. Um, but, but authors inspired by the Spirit would use acrostics when writing poems and songs and prayers for a couple reasons. Um, one that's very practical is it was easy to memorize. This is a time before the printing press, so an easy way to memorize a song or a prayer is to have a prompt in your mind. So when you think, okay, well, I know this starts with A. Oh, okay, this is how this verse goes. And I know the next one starts with B and so on and so forth. So it's a very practical reason. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's still common in, you know, like uh, children's education in, an, in America. Totally. We use acrostic devices to help kids learn and memorize certain things. And so... Why? Because they can't read, you know, or they're not yeah. strong readers. But for a, a, an entire community of people who don't have access uh, to read the written word, having right. an acrostic is really helpful um, for memorizing and, and learning something. Totally. And I think it just helped preserve um, the oral tradition of these psalms because we knew they were they were. They were sung and told as acrostic poems, um, and so it helped preserve it. And the second is a lot of times, and I think this is going on in Psalm 34, and it's going on in almost every acrostic poem in the Bible, is that the author is wanting to, the author being the human and the spirit, um, wanting to show us something, show us something about the completeness of, of living under the law of God, 
um, the completeness of God's sovereignty and his control over things going on, the completeness of gratitude or hope or longing um, or lament. This happens, this happens all over the Bible. So, I mean, just to throw out a bunch of Psalms that are acrostics, there's Psalm 25, 37, 111, 112, 145, 119, among others. Um, and if you know Psalm 119, we've already alluded to it before, but it's this really, really long Psalm, and it's actually a super acrostic. There are 22 books within Psalm 119, each book corresponding to one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each book has eight verses, all of which start with that book's letter. So the first book is the Hebrew A, and each eight verses start with that A. So it's this really long psalm that was easy to memorize for that reason, Um, but it does this like extra completeness of God's sovereignty and, um, and and, and delighting in God's law. Another example is uh, almost the entire book of Lamentations, of which there are five chapters, um, is an acrostic case study. Chapters one and two are are just regular acrostics, 22 verses. Chapter three is the super acrostic again. It's got 66 verses um, where each verse, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is represented three times. Um, and then chapter four goes back to a regular acrostic. And then chapter five, as the people of Lamentations kind of despair and um, are really longing, it, it abandons the whole acrostic uh, pattern altogether. And then it ends with that very famous um, sadness, unless you have utterly rejected us and remain exceedingly angry with us, which is how Lamentations ends. So we have this acrostic use all over the Bible that has just a deeper a deeper use than, uh, than simply memori- memorization, which is a really good reason to do it anyway. Um, but again, it, it's that theme of there's not, um, there's nothing less than memorization going on with acrostics, but there is also a lot more. Yeah. And here in Psalm 34, David is expressing this, this way in which God has saved him and provided for him and been a helper to him. And so using the acrostic devices is to say like from, from start to finish, you know, all, all along the way you are, you are here for me, uh, which is interesting considering the context of this Psalm, uh, which, which we see in, in first Samuel chapter 21. Um, and, there's this account where David is, um, he's in the process of fleeing from Saul. Uh, it's, which takes up most of first Samuel, David fleeing from Saul. And, and there's a moment in which David is trying to find a way to save himself from Saul. And he comes across Ahimelech and, and what happens? Yeah, so it, it's this really short narrative, actually. Um, it's, a, it's a little short paragraph, but um, as the Bible and the Old Testament history is apt to do, it, it was probably this days-long occurrence where David is fleeing for his life from Saul, who wants to kill him, because really David has risen to this, um, this extraordinary fame in the land for defeating Goliath, for defeating the giant warrior of the Philistines. Um, and so David has fleed at this time, and he, and he goes to Gath, which is a city— um, and he encounters this king, Abimelech or Ashish, is, both of which are just titles. We don't actually know the king's name, um, but those are just the titles of, of a king. 
Um, and the king immediately recognizes David, where David is hopeful that he won't be recognized by the king and that he can maybe, uh, scholars think, enlist in the military and kind of hide out for a while, but still fight for justice. Um, but instead, the king recognizes David, and in that moment, David just thinks, oh no, um, I'm caught, and this king is certainly going to hand me over to Saul. And so what he does, it's really quick-witted. Um, he pretends to be crazy. He pretends to be a madman, and it says that spit dribbles down his beard, and he just pretends to be insane and starts saying, you know, I am King David, I'm the king, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and Ashish, or Abimelech, really falls for it. He says, who, who brought me this crazy man? Because um, the guys who brought him David had thought, this is David, we need to bring him and turn him over to the king. Um, and he just kind of chastises the guards and says, you brought me a madman, let's kick him out. And so David is free from once again being ensnared and caught and turned over to Saul to his death. Um, so that is the context. You get this kind of idea that, that David has just been thrown out of the city gate um, and he's kind of running with a smile on his face and he pins this poem, this song, as a prayer of, of thanksgiving, of new orientation to the Lord um, for saving him. Um, which I find super interesting because if I were in that scenario and I had come up with on the spot to act crazy and it worked, I think, to be honest, my first thought outside the city gate would be, I am so smart. I yeah. am, I, nobody can match my wit. That was brilliant. How did I yeah. think of that? If somebody was with me, I would, I would say, did you see that? I just came up with that on the spot. <laughs> um, and David doesn't do that at all. He, he, he pours out thanksgiving to the Lord for having saved him. And so at that moment, David, you, you realize David attributes all of his wit in that moment to the Holy Spirit, to God. Um, and it's a little convicting, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. This idea that that at what what might seem in a very earthly and individualistic sense is a, a moment of great accomplishment or or you know my finest hour if you will and then David says well like the Lord is the one who has done this for me and really before like directly preceding that account of of David acting crazy so that he might be saved he also is is before the priest and he says look we're hungry like me and the people who are right. traveling with me are so hungry. And the priest says, we don't have any bread, but the bread of the presence in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And, and David essentially says, well, well, give us that bread. And we see that represented in verses eight through 10, where he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Like the Lord has saved him, not only from his enemy and Saul, and not only from his hunger, but he's done it through this bread of the presence, which is a beautiful allusion to the things that we experience at the table um, on Sunday, at least once we can gather again and participate in the table. Um, but I, yeah. I, I think that that's this theme of gratitude in, in Psalm 34 is really important because that's a consistent theme throughout the Psalms. Um, and, yeah. and really it, it grows and grows toward the end of the Psalter 
there's this kind of movement from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150 of lament to praise. And, yeah. and all wrapped up in that is there's these constant allusions to a future king, often, often from the mouth of David, the present king, of this yeah. future king who's going to bring about real justice, real prosperity, real righteousness in a way that David can't, in a way that, that no king that Israel's experienced before was able to, and that in that day their lament would be turned to, to praise. And David often uses in the mm. Psalms these experiences, these micro-salvations, if you will, of like God saving him in a moment to talk about this day when this future king is going to come and and make all things new. And, and I think that, that one of the elements of this acrostic that, that you mentioned before we started recording is that the end of this Psalm, something interesting happens. Yeah, that's right. And, and man, I think it's so, it's so spot on that you're talking about these micro instances that, um, that really are a shadow of the future salvation. So David is, you even read this Psalm and you're like, okay, like I get it. You got away. Um, but are, is this really that worth this much praise? And I think it's because of the Holy Spirit pinning this really, that it really does point to a future salvation. Um, so much so that it's quoted in the gospel of John. Um, and so we'll get to that, but yes, what you're saying is, is true. This is an acrostic um, Psalm 34 is with one little twist. Um, it, it follows the exact pattern of an acrostic until verse 22, and it breaks the pattern. It, I think it uses the Hebrew equivalent of of the letter P. Um, so this would be like like me singing the alphabet to my daughter uh, Maggie and going A B C D E F G H I J K L M N O P Q R S T U V W X Y M. Like it's this hanging moment of an unresolve, uh, if you will, or if you're a musician, it's like ending on this minor note when the whole song has been in the major key of C. Um, it just leaves you wanting something to be resolved, even though this is this this psalm of thanksgiving and praise. Um, and so, why why is that the case? Well, I think to understand that, you have to kind of look at the last. What well, really you have to look at the whole psalm, but. Um, looking at the last section, um, which I'm going to reread starting in Psalm or or starting in verse, uh, let's do 19. Um, it says this, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And then you've got the verse that changes. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. And so in there, um, if you having just read the context, there's an interesting line. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now we got no indication that David was about to have his bones broken when he stood before the King. I mean, maybe if he was captured and tortured and killed, but it's an interesting line, um, that, that is something deeper. And like, like we've already said a couple times, Cole, um, there is not less going on in this Psalm than a praise for being delivered from a specific situation. But there's a lot more, too. And so that line is actually, um, it's a prophecy about the Messiah. It's a prophecy about Jesus. Um, 
and this is what it says, and it, it, this is where it's quoted in, in John chapter 19, the Gospel of John, um, around verse, uh, I, I think it's quoted exactly in verse, let's see, 36. Um, but I'm going to back up a little bit so you get the context there too. It says this, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, this is when Jesus is hanging on the cross right now, um, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So this was common practice to go up and, and break the legs of the guys who had died on the cross and then make sure they're dead and then pull them down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with them. But when he came to Jesus, he saw that Jesus was already dead, so they did not break his legs. But one soldier pierced his side with a spear and there came out blood and water, which indicates that he was in fact dead. He, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. There's your Psalm 34. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced, which uh, there's a couple verses there, but I think Isaiah is what that's referring to. So anyway, the, the same Holy Spirit of God that inspired Psalm 34 inspired the, the writing of John 19 of this gospel. And, it's, and he, God himself is showing us that this is what I was talking about in this like probably confusing line for centuries. This, what is David talking about with these broken bones here that no bro bones have been broken? So what the author is doing in that moment, the author of John, who is John, um, is saying, okay, go read Psalm 34 again and think of Jesus. And so when you think of, oh man, okay, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. Um, who is righteous? No one. David's not even righteous. Um, David, we, uh, we know, is famous for a whole multitude of sins. Um, so the righteous will be afflicted. Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is the true one who is fully righteous. He lives a fully righteous life, a sinless life, and yet his afflictions are many. Um, and he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And his affliction will slay the wicked. It will destroy sin. Um, and the Lord will redeem the life of his servants. So because of Jesus's affliction, his servants will be redeemed. The people of God will be redeemed. Um, and we know that Jesus goes into the tomb dead. And he, three days later, on the third day, he, he rises from the grave. And then he, uh, he proclaims that he is risen and that death has been defeated. And the grave is no longer able to hold us. And then he ascends to the throne as king. And so I think that what this is showing us in this incomplete acrostic to kind of come full circle is that um, when this was written, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. It, it was not a complete statement yet. It wasn't true until Jesus, um, until Jesus lived the life on our behalf and died and rose again. That is what completes the acrostic. We're, it, it's a hopeful ending. It's a minor ending to a major psalm, if you will, um, that points us toward the future event of Jesus. And then when John tells us, hey, this is what that was pointing to, we get, it's almost like it resolves. That's the complete narrative. Now we get the complete Psalm of Thanksgiving. And now we can reread the Psalm, not in David's words where he's just excited that he was saved from a micro event, but we can read it as a, a Thanksgiving Psalm for our salvation. Um, as the people of God, we can sing it um, in a new way. And I think that's what, 
I think that's what the acrostic incompleteness is telling us. And that's what, um, that's what scholars think too. So it's not just my brilliant idea. It's, um, it's many people's brilliant idea. And and ultimately it's the Holy Spirit's brilliant idea. Yeah. I think, I think that when we can see those transitions happening in the Psalms, when we can see like one, the, the beauty of David's prayer in light of his specific circumstance, like we can learn from that, uh, in terms of learning how to pray and how to recognize God's grace to us in a moment or in a particular occasion. And then when we go back and read the Psalm, not only as a prayer of David in a moment, but as the prayer of all of God's people in light of who God is and what he's done for us specifically in Christ. And then we can even read it from the voice of Christ as a prayer of Jesus, right? Like, Jesus is the one who really fulfills verse one. Like he is the one who blesses the Lord at all times, who Mm. has praise praise continually in his mouth, whose soul always makes his boast in the Lord. Um, And he is the one who says, let the humble hear and be glad. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Yeah. Right. Like in as much as David was a leader and a king and a prophetic voice to Israel, teaching them the fear of the Lord. Jesus is the one who says to the nations, come, O children, to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And I think there's this really beautiful transition, really from verse 15 to the end, where where it says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. And so there's this idea that, okay, God is looking at his people. He's hearing them cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And so like God desires to protect his people, to save them from their enemies, both spiritual and earthly. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Mm. And David is saying this knowing it, right? Like he knows about the Exodus. He knows his own experience that he's been saved out of his troubles by the Lord. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, which there's that theme of lament that we see slowly weaning yeah. itself out of the Psalms. And then we get to this point where it's like, okay, the Lord hears us, he sees us, he saves us when we're brokenhearted, and we as God's people have a deep need for his salvation. And then verse 22, changing form and pointing us to this future king. It's like if you've really been reading the first 33 Psalms, and picking up on its themes, like you should understand what he's doing here. He's clearly pointing to this future king as the one who yeah. will bring about this salvation that that Israel and God's people long for. And I think it's so yeah. I think it's so helpful on a congregational level for us to see that, but even on a personal level, just to say, okay, like there are these moments in my life that feel really big where I need God to, to save me. I need him to save me from my anxiety or I need him to save me from difficulties in my family or, or whatever they might be. And one, the Psalms give us the freedom to really recognize those as real and important and worthy of praying about. Because I think we yeah. have a tendency often as Western Christians to try to minimize our personal experience and just say, well, well, like ultimately like God's forgiven my sins and I'm safe in him. And so these things don't matter. And the Psalms say, no, they, 
they really matter and God yeah. can really deliver you in them. And there's so much more. Yeah. And, and I think that's helpful to me because it's like, okay, well right now we're going through hard things. I mean, we're going through them as a society. I'm experiencing them personally and, yeah. and they're real. And I can pray to God and say like, God, I, I need your help. I'm hungry for the bread of the presence. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm hungry for you to save me from my enemies and trust that he will do that. But then also know that, that there is this end in which, in which there's something even more than being saved yeah. out of my momentary affliction. Like, and Paul talks about that all the time is that like, I'm, I'm sure that these momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the exceeding glory that mm -hmm. will be revealed. And that's kind of what David is saying here is like, God has saved me out of this momentary affliction, but it's nothing in light of the glory that's going to be revealed when the future King comes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think it, it, it it's totally speaking to that. It's totally speaking to this, um, this climax that we're heading towards. In when all things will be renewed and redeemed and all things will be rejoicing in gratitude. Um, and the other thing, uh, the last thing I'll kind of say about this psalm, I think, is um, it gives us kind of a cool roadmap for what salvation can look like personally. You know, the first seven verses are really about gratitude, magnifying God's goodness, thanksgiving. And then 8, 9, and 10, it shifts from from just magnifying the gra the gratitude that David has for the Lord to really an invitation for the reader, um, it kind of models evangelism. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that, that takes refuge in him. Um, so gratitude for salvation leads to proclaiming it to others. And then what, what you mentioned, Cole, verses 11, 12, 13, 14, actually read more like the Proverbs than they do a psalm. Um, it, it turns into wisdom. Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So then you start to think, okay, evangelism leads to our wisdom and then more evangelism and more wisdom and more evangelism, and more wisdom. And then it ends with this. Uh, and then it moves into that, that lament kind of section of, but there's still suffering for the believer. And so we're in the hopeful, we're in the hopeful season of, of wait for the Lord to come back and redeem all things, wait for the wicked to finally be slain, the death to finally be done. Um, and wait for the Lord to finally redeem the life of his servants by resurrecting us with him in the, in the last days. Um, so even in the, even all the Psalms do that, but even in Psalm 34 alone, there's, there's movements of the life of the believer, um, and the life of the people of God. So both individual and corporate. Yeah. Um, it's pretty cool. That is cool. I love the resolution in verse 22, how certain and final it is, it says, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take ref refuge in him will be condemned. And, yeah. and there's this absolute certainty in it. It's not David saying, oh, Lord, please redeem the life of your servants. Please save those who take refuge in him. It's no, he's going to do it. Right. And for those who live now in a post-resurrection and ascension reality, the Lord has redeemed the life of his servants and he will spare all who take refuge in him. Um, Amen. And that is, that is really, really good news. Um, well, for the sake of time, I think it's probably about time uh, that we wrap it up. Um, 
I'm just going to point our readers toward a resource that you pointed me toward. Um, for those who are, are interested in, in just learning more about reading the Psalms with more depth and seeing the work of Jesus in them, um, Richard Belcher has a book called The Messiah and the Psalms uh, that I know Reed uh, was recommended in a class and that have yeah. been really helpful to him. And so if that's something you're interested in, Messiah and the Psalms is a book that, that would probably be really helpful for you. Um, but Reed, thanks so much for, for joining me. It's been a blast. Of course. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>